Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Each day online can be a balancing act for parents. They want their children to safely explore the digital world, but also want to protect the precious offline moments they enjoy together. That's why the YouTube Kids app offers families a safer and simpler online video experience for children. As well as allowing parents to set limits on screen time, it also allows parents to choose a content library for their child based on age, or start from scratch and handpick videos and channels for their child to watch. To find out more, download the app today. Search YouTube Kids. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. I'm delighted to be joined by Rebecca Nagel, who is the host of This Land, which is a hugely successful and excellent podcast, and a podcast that's just concluded its second season. Both seasons of the podcast deal with the issue of the sovereignty of Native American reservations. Rebecca, please bear in mind that there's a, quite a strong British audience here who probably aren't too well across these issues. So perhaps you could just start by explaining your background, how you got into this podcast and the lay of the land, as it were. Absolutely. So I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. And so, you know, I've always had an interest in tribal sovereignty, you know, and what tribal sovereignty means really is just our right as indigenous nations to self-govern, you know, to say what happens on our land, to our waterway, you know, what happens, what laws we can pass that affect our citizens. And, you know, that isn't something that's given to us by the United States federal government. It's inherent. We've existed since the U.S. became a country. But because of colonialism, we have to pretty consistently negotiate that <laughs> with the U.S. federal government. And so this land podcast covers two big federal court cases that really impact that. So the first season was about a Supreme Court case that impacted land and treaty rights here where I live in eastern Oklahoma. And the second season follows how a string of custody battles over Native children turned into a federal lawsuit that threatens actually the whole of tribal sovereignty. Well, that second season concerns itself a lot with the, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Can you lay out a little bit about that and explain where the, where the fight is, where the tension is there? Absolutely. So, you know, the United States has a long history of separating Native children from their families and tribes. And so about a century ago, a century and a half ago, the U.S. started opening assimilation schools. Really similar ones actually were in Australia and Canada, where children were forced to attend. They were beaten if they spoke their languages. After boarding schools actually came another era of removal called the Indian Adoption Project. And the idea was that Native children would be adopted and raised in white homes because they were better off in white homes. 
I'm not sure exactly what system you guys have in the UK, but we have a child welfare system here in the United States. And a lot of those child welfare workers were removing children for reasons like, you know, they were being raised by a grandparent instead of their parents. And the social worker would come in and say, well, that's childhood abandonment and just snatch the child. And so Congress passed ICWA in 1978. Prior to that, a big survey had found that 25 to 35% of all Native children had been removed from their families and tribes. And the purpose of the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA for short, is to prevent that from happening and to make it harder for the government to do that. And in this particular case, it's a family called the Brakeens who are protesting against the act, are they not? Because they feel they should have the right to adopt a Native American child or or to not be preferentially discriminated against for being non-Native American. Yes, that is correct. So the way this case started was that Chad and Jennifer Brackeen became foster parents. They struggled a little bit at the beginning. They actually asked CPS to take their first foster placement back because the child was difficult, according to Jennifer's blog. Um, But the second child was a baby that they found was a lot easier to raise and easier to have in their home. About a year into raising them, his parents' rights were terminated. So that basically means that they didn't follow the things that they needed to do to be reunified with their son. And his tribe, Navajo Nation, um, within a couple months of that court decision, found a Navajo home to adopt the child. The Brackeens started fighting that transfer. And at first they were sort of losing in family court, but then they brought in some really, really, really powerful legal help. So a big corporate law firm that represents clients that probably even people in the UK have heard of, like Amazon and Walmart. We've heard of them. (laughs) And and they also brought in the attorney general of their state, which is one of the most powerful politicians that is in a state government. And so then the case went their way. And so that's what's kind of interesting about this case is that it didn't start when a white family was losing custody of a Native child. It actually started when that white family was actually winning custody of the Native child. But they say because ICWA made it harder for them to win that custody that it violated their constitutional rights. Do you think there is any validity in the argument that there should be no discrimination along racial lines when it comes to adoption? Well, I think that there's that's a complicated issue. One thing, and this is what is very particular in the law about Native Americans, and this goes back actually to the colonies, which is that Native Americans aren't a racial group under the law, we're a political group. And so, you know, prior to the United States being a country, we signed treaties with Britain. And then when the United States became a country, we signed treaties with the United States. And those treaties exist under the same constitutional process that the U.S. signs treaties with any other foreign government. And so because of that nation-to-nation relationship, our tribes and our tribal citizens have a special legal status, you know, so there's a hospital in the town where I live, where I go for everything from my glasses to my dental care. 
And I can go to that hospital, but somebody who's not a citizen of a tribe cannot. But that's not based on race. It's based on the fact that in treaties with my tribe, the U.S. federal government promised my tribe health care and our tribal citizens health care. And the U.S. got, you know, billions of acres of land in exchange for that promise. And so that's, you know, the logic from which all of federal Indian law flows. And even ICWA, um, you know, it only applies to children who are either enrolled in an indigenous nation or are eligible for that enrollment. And so it doesn't even apply to everyone with Native heritage. And so it's really about that child's political relationship to their tribe and that tribe's political relationship to the U.S. federal government. And so to say that it's about race, you know, people can make that argument, but it goes against centuries of U.S. law. And so it's a pretty radical argument to make. And that's that's why this case is a threat to tribal sovereignty, because if ICWA is discrimination based on race, well, then what about every other law the U.S. has passed literally since the founding of our republic mm. that treats tribes and tribal citizens differently because it recognizes that unique treaty relationship? But it is very unique, is it not? Because you, am I right in thinking, can one be a member of a, of a tribe without some blood connection to the tribe? That actually does exist. So my tribe is an example of that. We actually, we adopted slavery from the American South and we enslaved people of African descent. Now, some of those, they're called freedmen descendants. Some folks are also Cherokee by blood. And some aren't. And because of our history of both enslaving their ancestors and a treaty that we signed in 1866, those folks have um, citizenship rights in our tribe. So my tribe, Cherokee Nation, you don't have to have quote unquote Cherokee blood to be a citizen. And we have that right just like any other country. So England gets to say who is a citizen of England. The United States gets to say who is a citizen of the United States. And Cherokee Nation gets to say who is a citizen of Cherokee Nation. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, it's not up to U.S. courts. You know, it'd be kind of like you guys over in England and like the Supreme Court saying, well, who gets to be a citizen of England and who doesn't get to be? You guys would be like, but out of here. Like, it's not up to you. <laughs> and that's really what it is. That's that's part of understanding what tribal sovereignty is, which I think a lot of times, you know, folks think of Native Americans as a cultural group or something like that. But our governments still exist and still practice self-governance. And saying who is a citizen of your nation is one of the basic functions of a government. And so it depends on the tribe what those requirements are, but it is absolutely not just based on blood. As you suggested earlier, there, there's quite a strong lobby against Native American sovereignty. And I think there's a strong suspicion, is there not, that uh, this comes from the tobacco and the gambling lobbies in Washington. Is that Am I barking along the right lines there? What we found, so the attack on ICWA is, is big. There's basically been an avalanche of cases in the past decade. And it's kind of odd because, you know, like I said, this law was passed in 1978. It's over 40 years old. So why now and why ICWA would this law become so controversial? And what we found is that the lawyers who really have the power and honestly, frankly, the money to bring this level of litigation 
not only work for the gaming industry and for gaming and betting clients, but they work for gaming and betting clients that are fighting tribal casinos and in those cases have made the same arguments that they're making in the ICWA case. And so, you know, what some of the experts we talked to shared with us is that, you know, there's this idea that this attack on ICWA is really just a Trojan horse for these gaming interests. And, you know, it's not a huge logical leap to think, okay, they've taken, they've basically imported these laws from casinos to kids. And if they win on this adoption issue, then they can transport it back from kids to casinos. And just just clarify again for British listeners, what are the different rules for Native American lands in terms of casinos and, let's say, alcohol and tobacco? Yeah, so I, I would just clarify, I, I don't, I have not seen any evidence that alcohol and tobacco interests are part of these cases, um, mm. but it's definitely, there's a lot of overlap with gaming and betting. And then the other, other big player is oil in the fossil fuel industry. So yes. I don't know if British listeners heard about the fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline or have heard of Standing Rock, but the same law firm that represented that pipeline company is the one that's bringing this equa case. To say how those laws work, (laughs) I think it's very complicated, but basically, um, you know, tribes can operate or are supposed to be able to operate, sometimes the law actually isn't followed, casinos without state regulation on tribal land. And the way the gaming industry works in the United States is that it's really about markets and what share of the market you have. So even regionally, you know, if you think about big areas where people might even travel or drive to go to a casino because it's not legal everywhere in the United States, those market shares are really important. And tribal casinos take about 50% of the market in the United States, which is about $30 billion annually. So there's big, big, big money to be made if people can, you know, impede, shrink, or even eliminate um, tribal gaming. What's your view on the legalization of gaming? Are you pro it or against it? What Do you think it should be more relaxed outside of Native American lands in America? have a particular view. You know, I think there can be a lot of stereotypes about tribal gaming and tribal casinos here in the United States. I don't know if people in Britain have those same stereotypes, but I think one thing that's really important to understand about our tribal governments is that we're a layer of government just like any other government. So my tribe is doing COVID testing. My tribe is distributing vaccines. My tribe is laying down pipes so that people who live in rural areas have access to drinking water. They're paving roads. They're doing all, we have our own police force. We have our own court system. We're doing all the same functions of a local city, state, county government, but we don't have the same rights to tax that those governments do, our our ability to tax, it's not zero, but it has been very limited. And so we have to come up with business ways to have economic growth so that we can support those types of programs for both our citizens and, you know, frankly, for the benefit of everybody who lives in the areas where we have jurisdiction. And so I think it's an important thing for people to keep in mind about tribal gaming in the United States. And one of the strengths of your podcast is that you allow interesting and different characters with different points of view to come across. And there's one character called Mark Fiddler, 
who is native himself, but seems extremely opposed to ICWA. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, so Mark Fiddler is an adoption attorney in Minnesota, and he's been instrumental, I would say, in helping connect plaintiffs in these cases. So those are, you know, pre-adoptive parents or non-native foster parents who want to adapt a native child with some of the bigger players and some of the bigger legal resources. He's been kind of that bridge. And he is a very interesting character. You know, he used to work on the other side of the issue. He used to fight and represent native families in ICWA cases. He left that nonprofit on bad terms and then started showing up in cases attacking the constitutionality of ICWA. And so I think that's one thing that's like very, very, very interesting (laughs) about the attack on ICWA is that um, when we dug into it, it's actually a pretty small circle of people. You know, the main players, you can kind of count on a couple hands. But because these folks have had a lot of access to resources, they've been able to bring a lot of cases. And now a case that is waiting on the steps of the Supreme Court. That Supreme Court case is coming up. What, what do you think the implications will be for Native American tribes if the Brackeens, the plaintiffs in this case, if they win? It could be devastating. So like we mentioned before, the plaintiffs allege that ICWA discriminated against them based on race and that it's unconstitutional. And it could be really, really dangerous precedent that goes against centuries of settled law about the unique political status of tribes and tribal citizens. So I think of it as sort of a thread on a sweater where if you can start to pull the thread, the whole sweater could unravel. And so it could really have a domino effect that set really dangerous precedent for everything from, you know, what we were talking about with tribal gaming, but also land and water rights, health care, tribal self-governance, tribal police. It, it could have a big sweeping effect on the whole of tribal sovereignty in the United States. Might that be what season three becomes about or have you got another idea for it? Too soon to say. We'll have to see how the case goes. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining Americano Podcast. It's been very interesting talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. (laughs) 